0: Welcome to the Watermark OC Church Sunday morning message podcast. At Watermark, we believe that teaching and preaching is not just about information transfer. It's actually about life transformation. So we continue this tradition that has been handed down to the very first believers over 2,000 years ago. Teaching and preaching matters for the formation of your mind, for your soul, for your body. And we hope that today your ideas are challenged. And that your imagination is reignited with the truth of Scripture. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to connect with us, just go to watermarkoc.com slash contact.
1: Good to see you guys this morning. Thanks for coming. Hope you're having a great uh, Memorial Day weekend. Hopefully tomorrow, scheduling some time to rest. Maybe a barbecue. Maybe some, hopefully, beach time. Hopefully the sun will come out. You know, I'm tired of this May gray. But hopefully you're just blessed whatever you do. And, and just take time to reflect like we all want to do. And just thank God for the people that given their lives so that we could be free. And so I hope you're blessed. We're blessed to have you in church this weekend as we continue our series Culture Wars. And uh, our subject today, Women in Leadership, uh, in the culture and in the church more. Um, Boy, has that been uh, a culture war. And and the casualty of that culture war, which is so sad for me many times, has been the relationship between men and women, actually. (laughs) The casualty of that culture war has been... uh, a difficult struggle, challenge, conflict between men and women. And it's actually depleted the relationship and the power of what God created it to be. And this morning, we want to look at the book of Genesis. We want to look at the whole biblical history and see how has God beautifully positioned women in their leadership role within the church and in the family. And I don't see it as a conflictual role with men. God did not create men and women to conflict in leadership, in the family, in the church. He created them to complement one another, a complementarian role so that the planet would flourish, so that the, the, the household would flourish, so that the church would flourish, and the world would see the gospel in this relationship. And so I would like to talk about that this morning, and maybe you have been a, a casualty of this morning. Maybe there's church hurt based on your history. Maybe you've been hurt by this war within the church, outside of the church. Maybe there's pain. Maybe there's confusion. Hopefully, we can clarify some things. Hopefully, we can be clear on where Watermark stands, and hopefully, we can help you with encouragement and healing in your life as you move forward with Jesus. Well, let's begin this whole thing, and if you have questions, as always, you can text those to us during the sermon. We're going to have a Q&A at the end. Ben will come up here, and He and I will try to answer questions as best we can. We appreciate your questions. It's a great dialogue. It's not that we're the experts. We're modeling what the church should be. There should be a dialogue in the church so we can open God's truth. We can talk together and come together and learn and grow and flourish. And that's what this is attempting to model for you. And that happens in our small groups as well. But let's start with this whole study on women and leadership in the very beginning. Let's go back to the book of Genesis. And see how God begins to define women and their roles. And I would say, men and women are different by design. God set it up that way, and thank God that he did. Does all the men say amen? Amen. It would be an awful boring world if it was just men running around here, let me tell you. This is personal for me, because I have a beautiful wife that we've led together in our family and in the church for many, many years. 40 years of marriage, and we have three daughters that flourish in leadership within the local church. And so it's been a personal thing. It's been a thing that we've had to try to live out and understand. And so I'm excited that men and women are different by design. And let's look at the original design from the book of Genesis. Women are equally valued and empowered by God. Men and women are equally valued and empowered by God. Genesis 1, the beginning of this whole thing, Moses is writing to a nation of slaves. Slaves in the ancient world, image bearers, right? They were only kings. Kings were the ones that were the sons of God. They were the image bearers. They were closest to God, right? And so Moses, under the power of the Spirit, writes to this nation and says, you are all image bearers. You all have value and worth. This is incredibly elevating for the role of of women right at the beginning. So God created mankind in his own image, Image bearers, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. And so we see that men and women are both equally valued before God, equally endowed with image-bearing capacity. Amazing to reflect God, not only individually, but in the partnership that they have with one another. They're equally blessed. God blessed them, not just the men. He blessed them. He blessed them both, and he empowered them both. Go, the creation man that filled the earth, subdue it, rule it in such a way that people understand who I am and are drawn to me and brought near to me by your stewardship of the creation. So incredibly valued and empowered equally, but designed beautifully different for a distinct purpose, a complementarian purpose. You know when we look at Genesis Genesis 1 we see the complementary nature of the creation right we see these equals coming together for flourishing right we see heaven and earth joined together right we see darkness and light working together we see land and sea this complementary thing at the height of that is the creation between man and woman and in this complementary role to reflect god's image god's essence to the world And now in Genesis 2, we go to a zoom lens. We get get down and deep and look at how does this actually happen? How does this actually work in the relationship between the man and the woman? And so, in Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam first, out of the ground, pulls him out of the ground, forms him into a man, breathes the breath of life into him, places him into a garden, and gives him his role, a protective role. Of all the trees in the garden, anybody can eat. But guess what? You can't eat this tree. Adam gets the the role to protect and defend the garden and set boundaries, right? That's his role, to be the protector so that the garden would provide flourishing. And as Adam is given that authority, he's called to name the animals. This is your name. He's, He's a protector. He's a promoter of life by defining life and giving names to the different animals. And after he does that, it says... It's not good that you're doing this alone. The Lord God said, it's not good for the man to be alone. In this creation, mandate. I will make a helper suitable for him. That is why a man leaves his mother and father and is united, becomes one with his wife, and the two become one flesh. And out of that oneness, out of that unity, out of that beautiful complementarian covenant relationship of love, brings life and flourishing. That word helper is the word ezer. In the original Hebrew, it is not a role that is diminishing. It doesn't mean that you are less valued. It is a word that is used in the Old Testament for God mostly. In the Old Testament, the word "ezra" is used for God. Right? It's not diminishing value because it's used for the divine nature of God. You're going to play a godlike role in supporting Adam. You're going to become a helper because God is the helper, the Ezra of Israel. It's to come alongside someone who's given a task and responsible for that outcome. Adam has been given a task to create flourishing in the garden. You're to come alongside and support him in that task so that life might flourish. A supportive, encouraging role to Adam, a come-alongside role. And this is the role of the helper. The, the helper. And so in the creation account, Genesis 2, we have two defined roles. Men and women are equal in value, but purpose differently. We see this beginning of the role of headship, giving oversight to the creator. That's Adam's role. That's uniquely his role. He's created first, he's given that authority. And then we see the woman's beautiful role as a helper, a come alongside so that they can work together in a complementary partnership so that life might flourish. This is the original design. And as that design is brought into Israel, it provides flourishing for women in leadership. As this design is brought into Israel, it provides flourishing for women in leadership in the Old Testament. Here in the, uh, the nation of Israel, the nation of Judah, many kings, and we have the king Josiah, Who's leading Israel at this time? He's a godly king. He's leading the, 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 tri- the, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. He is Josiah, and he's bringing reforms to Israel. He's bringing reforms to the nation. He's calling out Israel and casting out idols. He's tearing down shrines to foreign gods. Israel has let gods come into their land, and they're worshiping other gods. And Josiah is a reformer. He throws out the foreign gods. He says, Let's clean up the temple. Let's make it the way God wants us to make Let's make it. The place of holiness. And so he gets the high priest. And the high priest's name is Hilkiah. And he says, Would you make sure the sanctuary is holy so we can do the things that God's called us to do? And when Hilkiah goes into the sanctuary, he finds the book of the law. He finds the book of Moses. And he brings it to the king. The king reads it and he goes, Oh my OMG, oh my God. God's going to be angry at us because we've gone so far away from God. He's going to judge the nation. What should we do? And he asks that question to the the head. The the priest, the high priest is headship. He's over the house of God. And what does the high priest do? Let's go ask the woman. Let's go ask the prophetess who's gifted to help us understand what the voice of God is for here and now. And so the high priest, here's what it says. Find out, this is the king, find out what we must do in response to what is written in this book of the law that was just been found. God's anger must be burning fiercely against us. He's going to take us out. Elkai, the high priest, and those picked by the king went straight to Huldah, who's a prophetess, she's a very gifted leader in Israel and honored. And so here you see the headship role and you see the helper role as they ask her to interpret. She inquires of God and she gives a word of knowledge. She gives a word to the king so that he would be encouraged and the nation might flourish in their leadership. And the word is, hey, God has heard you. Yes, you've interpreted this right." Judgment is coming to Israel, but I'm going to stay that judgment because of your humility and your repentance. Because you have repented in such a way and want to lead the nation, I'm going to bless your kingship and you'll die in peace. This is a word that's given to the king. We see this beautiful, complementary, gifted leadership in Israel between men and women. The women are flourishing in this role right here, as you see, in Huldah's role. Well, this just doesn't happen in the Old Testament. It also happens in Jesus In the New Testament, Jesus is a revolutionary when it comes to the role of women in the first century. If you were a woman in the first century, in the Greco-Roman world, guess what? You were viewed as property. You were owned by a man. The pteris familiars, the head of family, was the head of the family, and it was male, and you were owned by a man. And in terms of the the philosophical view of women of the day that comes out of Socrates and Aristotle, you were an ill-gotten man. That means you were a mistake. And you were unable to be educated because of that. You were untrustworthy in your character because you were too emotionally and you, you didn't have the centeredness. And so you were looked down upon. And the only thing of value and worth for a woman in the first century was domestic, domestic reproduction. Jesus revolutionized the role of women. In first century Israel, who was educated, men were. Who was discipled by rabbis, men were. And yet Jesus had women following him all across the countryside. And they sat at his feet. And they were his disciples. Here's a famous story that we all love, the story of Martha and Mary. We think this is about busyness. This is about Martha being too busy and Mary being willing to sit down and calm down. That's really not the underpinnings of this story. This story is about Jesus elevating the role of women as disciples. Beautiful. Mary's upset. She's working in the kitchen, which is totally honorable. And she says, hey, Jesus, tell, excuse me, Martha is, hey, Jesus, tell Mary to get off her duff and come and help me in the kitchen. And here's what Jesus says. The Lord says to her, dear Martha, you are worried and upset about so many details. There is only one worth being concerned about, right? Right. Being my disciple, Mary has discovered it. She's sitting at my feet. It will be not taken away from her. And so she's elevated. Jesus had women follow him all over. He empowered them. Who were the first ones to the empty tomb? Were they the men? No, they ran away because they were scared they were going to get killed. The women were there. And they they were the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And they are empowered as they bring that message. Jesus honors them right out of the empty tomb. And so Jesus was a revolutionary, and women were incredibly empowered. And that flourishing came as Jesus died and rose from the dead, and the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. It didn't just fall on men. It fell on men and women who were incredibly gifted, incredibly empowered to lead the growth of the gospel to the Reco-Roman world so that the church might flourish. Women flourished in the early church in many, many different roles, many, many different gifted ways. Here's one example of this. In the life of Priscilla and Aquila. A man and woman partner who partnered with Paul, right? Probably discipled by Paul. And they became incredible leaders and teachers in the early church. And here's a guy named Apollos. A kind of a young Ben Appleby kind of a guy. He was a young teacher full of of spitfire, but he needed some seasoning. Maybe Ben needs some seasoning. Is there a good woman that can help Ben? I think Riley can do that, but maybe maybe Gramushka could too. But here we go. Meanwhile, a Jew, Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, strong through knowledge of the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor. He was an incredible orator, an incredible preacher, and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He wasn't caught up on Pentecost. He wasn't caught up on the power of the Holy Spirit, and that was moving in the church, Right? He began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila, right, this married pair, these married leaders, heard him. They invited him to their home, right, to disciple him, to train him up, to let him know the fullness of the gospel. And so they brought him in and they taught him so that he would grow in his discipleship, in his ministry of preaching. Interesting. Whose name is mentioned first? Priscilla is. It was Priscilla and Aquila, right? Right? The woman is mentioned first, and this is not by mistake. This is because that was the etiquette, because usually the person who was stronger in influence and more passionate about the issue was mentioned first. She's the one doing the lion's share of discipleship in the life of this man. She's discipling him in the ways of the Lord. She is flourishing in her teaching role, her pastoral teaching gift, in the life of this man named Apollos. We see it right here. We see women leading powerfully, through gifts and empowerment structure in the early church. Here's what Stanley Grin says. The gospel radically altered the position of women, elevating them in a partnership with men unparalleled in the first century world. Incredible, revolutionary thing. Jesus and the gospel. Because in the writings of Paul, you see that women are equally valued with men. So in Christ Jesus, through the gospel, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, positionally, right, just like creation, we are equally valued as men and women because we're all children of God. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who are baptized into Christ have clothed ourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. These social structures don't, don't have place and precedent. Neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. We're equally valued men and women because of the gospel. We're also equally gifted. So Christ himself Gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, right, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. These gifts are gifts of the Holy Spirit, and they're given to both men and women and empowered through men and women in the early church through the Holy Spirit. Here's some of the people that are powerful Philip's daughters. They have a prophetic gifting. They're used in the life of the early church. Priscilla has a teaching discipleship gift. She's used. Phoebe is a deacon. She carries letters. She carried the letter to the Church of Rome. And if you were a deacon or if you were somebody that carried a letter, you actually wrote it, read it to the church, and actually explained some of it. There's a deacon, a woman, uh, Phoebe, doing that as a deacon in Rome. What about Junia? She's mentioned for an apostolic gift. Not in big A apostle, little A. She is missional. She's a missionary. That's her name, Junia. Yodia, Yodia and Synniki. They are mentioned in Philippians. They're great women leaders that Paul loves and says, "Hey guys, be unified in your leadership." Potentially, they're doing deacon role or even evangelistic roles. We have many house church leaders, women who are, are heads of families, right? Single women or heads of families that are leading churches in their houses, right? Paul mentions them: Chloe, Lydia. They're giving pastoral care and oversight to people in their home. Women are empowered by Paul and flourishing in all positions in the early church, except one, because they're equally valued, but they're positioned in a complementary role. They're equally valued, equally empowered by the Holy Spirit, but positioned structurally in a complementary role. Just like Genesis, we have headship and helpership, so in the early church, and in the family, the same way, we have headship and helpership. and we see this in the role of the early church. Paul defines this headship role as an elder, an overseer, right? Here's what he says in First Timothy he also says this in Titus. Now the overseer, right, is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable hospital, able to teach. In the, in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, the role of elder is reserved exclusively for men. It is a headship role that comes from creation. It is a male role. It is given to men, and it is a defending role. It's not a power role. It's not an abusive role. And again, forgive me if it's been abused by men in the church. That is not God. That's patriarchal, and that should be thrown out. But it is a legitimate role. Because headship is not about power, but about protection. Elders are to protect the life of the church, the doctrine of the church. Their role is to protect and define biblical doctrine out of the scriptures to ensure that people are flourishing. The flock is being shepherded in such a way that they're growing in Christ. Elders are called to define doctrine, to defend doctrine, even to their death. To give their lives for the doctrines of the church. It is a defender role. That's its primary role. Where? What about the other roles? We have a deacon role, which is a role for structural support. The helper role. And those are given to both men and women in the early church. In this way, my deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. These are deacons, and these are deacons that are men. And then it goes to women in the same way the women who are deacons... Are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate, trustworthy, and everything. And so Paul defines the role of deacon as both open to both and empowered men and women. But elders reserved just for that protector role and the headship of the male. We see this played out in 1 Timothy. As Paul talks about the role of an elder in a very difficult situation. Ephesus is in an uproar. The church is being divided by false teaching. And a part of that, Paul's teaching, is affecting the the, the relationship between men and women. And so Paul says there needs to be order in the meeting, order in the gathering. And so Paul defines a different kind of teaching for the elder. He says it's teaching with authority. I do not permit a woman to teach. Wait wait a minute, Paul. Priscilla's teaching. Women are teaching. You talk about in Corinth that women are going to have words of knowledge and prophetic words. Now you're saying women don't teach. Well, it's not just teaching. I don't permit, permit women to teach or assume authority. To teach as an elder, to teach out of authority as the headship. That's not the woman's role. And then Paul goes back to Genesis. Remember why? Because of the authority structure given in Genesis. Now in the church, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. He's going back to the role of headship. That's reserved for the elder, and it's a certain type of teaching. An elder's role is to defend doctrine. Elders stand up, this is the doctrine of the church, and this is why. There's false teachers in Ephesus, and the men need to step up and put that down and stand for the doctrine. That's the elder role, those men in the church that are the elders. Yes, there's a teaching role for many people in the church, men and women both. That's more of an equipping discipleship teaching, right? That's that's what that's for. And so I love Andrew Wilson He's a complementarian, a great theologian. Ben and I heard him speak last week. He says there's two types of teaching. There's a T1 teaching in the church that's reserved for the elders. And that's just about defining, defending doctrine. There's a T2 teaching that is reserved for anybody that has the gift of teaching. It could be men and women alike. They can teach out of that. That's the distinction, the difference. And so here's what Andrew says. In Paul's gospel, there's equality between men and women. Of course, there's absolutely, but for Paul himself, this is not incompatible with insisting that particular roles, the role of elder, the role of deacon, be played, uh, particular roles be played by both genders in the home and in the church, right? That's the role of headship and the role of helper. Okay, what's Watermark's stance? Well, watermark is called soft complementarianism. We're complementarian in our theology, and we're on the soft. There's, two, there's, within the church, the overall structure of the church, you have people that are on the left, they're called egalitarians. That means everybody's equal. There's no distinction between men and women. You've got hard complementarianism over here that says women can't do any form of leadership. It's only men. And you've got here that we say the creation actually says that women and men are both in leadership but in a complementarian role, the men being the headship in the other board, and women being powered come alongside and support their leadership with their leadership. Here's how Watermarks run. We're elder-led. At the highest level, men are giving oversight and expressing headship, overall direction and doctrine, defending, defining for the church. That's the elder board level. Ben sits on the elder board. I'm an elder at large. Ben's going to answer questions if you have about that. But that's very, a, a very small amount of decision-making coming out of that board because that's holding long-term vision and talking about the long-term direction of the church. Where is the decision-making and where is the actual role of playing out things in the church? That happens through the staff. Staff run. We are men and women on our staff. We have both men and women that are equally gifted and empowered who are called in their roles to implement the vision and empower the vision of the church. Uh, Ben and I are part of the executive team. Sherry Eklund's a part of that team with us, and so she provides a great role as a female leader that we so need in her leadership, and we come together, and we are the executive team of the church. Then we have deacons, many, many deacons who are both men and women leading in the church, gifted and called, whether that's homeless ministry, prayer ministry, women's, men's, they're doing the amazing work of the church, both men and women. So this is the role, this is the structure of Watermark, you may have questions as I've unpacked all that, gave you a lot of stuff. Ben's going to come up, and we're going to try to answer your questions. Text them in now or raise your hands. Someone will bring you uh, the mic, and we'd love to hear from you as we try to clarify and dialogue about this important issue.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sunday morning message at Watermark OC Church. If you have questions, go to watermarkoc.com/slash questions, or you can go to our homepage, watermarkoc.com, and reach out for coffee with a pastor. We cannot wait to meet you.